Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. I can hardly believe it, but this is actually my 200th episode of The Conspirators. A lot has changed over these last few years. To this show, to myself, and to the world around me. In all this time, though, I never expected this podcast to become the success it has. And it's all because of longtime listeners like you. I can't possibly thank you enough for sticking with me and for listening to me tell all my little tales of the weird, dark, and unusual from history that have fascinated me ever since I was a little boy watching In Search of and Unsolved Mysteries on TV. So for this episode, I wanted to do something special for you. Something I've been asked about a bunch of times by many of my faithful listeners. You see, it turns out that some of these mysteries I've previously covered on this show have seen some pretty major developments in recent years, thanks to modern science and a lot of good detective work. So to help celebrate 200 episodes, I'm going to revisit three of the biggest mysteries I've ever covered. And I'm going to let you in on the latest updates in each of these cases and provide you some of the answers we've all been looking for. All three of these stories center around mysterious individuals whose true identities have remained a secret for years. That is, until now. In each story, recent developments have led to uncovering the names of these mysterious individuals. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you who they were. New listeners, you won't be left out either because I'm going to give you the highlights of each story as well. So, without further ado, I'm Nate Hale, and here's to the next 200 episodes. And this is The Conspirators. Part 1. The Somerton Man Without a doubt, one of the most famous mysteries to come from the land down under is that of the identity of the mysterious deceased individual who has come to be known as the Somerton Man. The man's body was first spotted by two couples walking along Somerton Beach in Adelaide, the capital of Australia, in November 1948. On November 30th, jeweler John Bain Lyons and his wife were out for a stroll along the beach when they noticed a smartly dressed man lying on the sand with his head propped up against a seawall. At first, the couple thought the man might have been drunk because he was still alive at that point. But he was moving lethargically. As the couple neared the stranger, he lifted his right arm upward, then let it drop back to the ground. Lyons thought he might have drunkenly been thinking he held a cigarette in his hand. 
Half an hour later, another couple came by and spotted the same man lying unmoving in the same position Lyons saw him in earlier. The man was well-dressed, in a nice suit and new shoes that were shiny and polished. This was unusual attire for someone visiting a beach. The second couple assumed the man was drunk as well and just sleeping it off. There were a number of mosquitoes buzzing around the man's face, but he didn't seem bothered by them. The boyfriend even joked that the man appeared to be dead to the world. It wouldn't be until the following morning when other visitors to the beach began to realize that this man was well and truly deceased. John Lyons, the man who originally spotted him the night before, returned to the beach for a morning swim and was surprised to see a group of people clustered around the man's body. Although everyone now realized what they were looking at was a deceased individual. At the same time, there were no apparent signs of just what had killed him. One notable detail people did report was that there was a half-smoked cigarette lying on the man's collar as if it had fallen from his mouth. The body was transported to the Royal Adelaide Hospital three hours later. There, Dr. John Barkley reported the time of death to be around 2 a.m. The official cause of death he put down in his report was heart failure. Although he also noted that he suspected poisoning may have been involved as well. The trouble with the Somerton man that remained a mystery for decades after that was that no one could identify him. And when investigators began to dig through the clues to the man's identity, the mystery only deepened further. Inside the man's pockets were two tickets from Adelaide to the beach, as well as a pack of cigarettes that contained two different brands, one more expensive than the other. He was also carrying some matches, a pack of chewing gum, and two combs. He didn't have a wallet on him, nor did he have any cash or ID. Even more curious, all the identifying labels had been carefully snipped away from the man's clothing. This felt like a deliberate attempt to hide anything that might have identified him. It was also noted that one of the man's pants pockets had been neatly repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread. A full autopsy later noted that the man's pupils were smaller than normal for some unknown reason. In addition, his spleen was distended to three times its normal size and full of congested blood. Inside the man's stomach was found the remains of a meat pasty and a further quantity of blood, all of which only added to the speculation that he had been poisoned. Although further testing never found any traces of poison in the man's system, at the same time, no specific cause of death was ever determined either. Something else that was noted on the autopsy report was that the man had been in unusually good shape, particularly his well-developed calf muscles, which led to further speculation that the Somerton man may have been a dancer or an athlete. Although photographs of the man along with his fingerprints were widely circulated, no one ever came forward to identify him. Then on January 12th, the mystery deepened when someone found the Somerton man's luggage inside the cloakroom of the main railway station in Adelaide. Although none of the staff recalled who had left the case with them, it was soon determined that these were indeed the Somerton man's belongings. Inside the suitcase was a reel of the same orange thread that had been used to repair the man's trousers. The case bore no stickers or markings. Like the clothing the dead man had been wearing, the tags had been torn off most of the items of clothing inside the case. Another identifying tag had also been removed from the case itself, but not all the clothing had the potentially identifying marks removed. There were three items of clothing that bore the name Keen. Although investigators tried tracing the name, they reached a dead end with that lead as well. 
Along with the items of clothing inside the case, there were also a few other tantalizing clues as well. There was a stenciling kit that would have been used by the third officer on a merchant ship. There was also a table knife with the handle cut down, and a coat with unusual stitching that a tailor later said appeared to be American in origin. This, of course, led investigators to look into the possibility the man had been a sailor and had traveled to Australia from another country. Although searches of immigration and shipping records led nowhere, Four months after the man's body was discovered, police investigators brought in another expert, Professor John Cleland, the head of pathology at the University of Adelaide, to re-examine the evidence. It was he who found one of the most unusual clues for the man's identity that developed turn this into one of the most famous unsolved mysteries in Australia's history. Professor Cleland discovered a small hidden pocket inside the waistband of the man's trousers inside of which was a tightly rolled scrap of paper that contained two words in an elaborate printed script. The two words on that tiny scrap of paper said, Tamam Shud. This would turn out to be a scrap of paper torn from a rare New Zealand edition of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Those two words were a Persian phrase that translated to, It is ended. It's because of those words that some investigators began to speculate that the man may have taken his own life. South Australia police put out the word to local booksellers looking for a copy of the book where those words had come from, but for a time no one came forward. It wouldn't be until eight months after the Summerton man's body was discovered when a Glenelg man walked into the detective office of the Adelaide police station carrying the very copy of the book those words had been torn from. He said that back in late November he had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law near Summerton Beach. He told police he parked his car in a nearby parking space, and later when he and his brother returned to the vehicle, they discovered the book lying inside the car near the rear seats. Neither man thought much of it, and they just tossed the book inside the glove box and forgot about it. It wasn't until the man read a news article about the search for this particular book that he realized he had it in his possession the entire time. Investigators studied the book carefully and discovered a telephone number penciled on the rear cover along with the faint impression of some other writing in capital letters underneath. Police traced the phone number to a young nurse named Jessie Jo Thompson who lived near Somerton Beach. Although the woman was reluctant to cooperate with detectives, she admitted to them that she had once given a copy of the Rubaiyat to a man she had known during the war, a man she knew as Alfred Boxall. At this point, police thought they might finally have a name to go with the unidentified body. That is, until they discovered that the real Alfred Boxall was very much alive, and he still had the copy of the Rubaiyat the nurse had given him. One other curious detail that did emerge during the police's investigation into Joe Thompson was that when she learned that a dead man had been found on the beach not far from her home, she reportedly nearly fainted when she was presented a cast of the Somerton man's face. Although after that incident, Thompson still fervently denied knowing the man's true identity. When police examined the capital letters that were written on the cover, they discovered they were a strange jumble of letters that they suspected were some sort of code. The cipher was sent to naval intelligence experts and later published in newspapers, but the Navy ultimately announced this code to be unbreakable. Over the years, many theories have been put forth as to the Summerton man's identity, everything from he was a smuggler, to a former professional ballet dancer, to a jilted lover murdered by his romantic partner, to my personal favorite, he was a Russian spy. Perhaps the most convincing theory was that he had been in a relationship with the nurse, Joe Thompson. 
It was notable that Thompson had a son named Robin whose unusually shaped ears and teeth closely resembled those of the Somerton man. It just so happens that Robin also grew up to be a professional dancer with the Australian Ballet Company. Although countless amateur and professional investigators alike have studied the mystery of the Somerton man's identity, probably the most prominent investigator is Derek Abbott, a physicist and electronic engineer from the University of Adelaide. For many years, Abbott theorized that Robin may have been the Somerton man's illegitimate son. In fact, Abbott actually married Robin's granddaughter during his two decades-long investigation. But things took a dramatic turn in August 2022, when Abbott announced that he and forensic genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick had conclusively proven the identity of the Somerton man using modern DNA testing. Fitzpatrick ran the Somerton man's DNA through a genealogical database and was able to trace his identity through a family tree of more than 4,000 people, coming to a single, undeniable conclusion. The new DNA analysis indicated that the Somerton man was Carl Charles Webb, an electrical engineer from Melbourne, who vanished from the public record sometime after April 1947. This was certainly an unexpected turn of events, considering the name Carl Webb was brand new to the investigation and instantly shot holes in the hundreds of theories to the man's identity that had been put forth over the decades. One other thing the DNA tests also proved is that the Somerton man was not genetically related to Robin Thompson, the son of the nurse who allegedly fainted upon learning of the man's death. Webb was born in 1905, although photographs of Carl Webb have been difficult to come by. He did have a brother, Roy, who died as a prisoner of war in 1943, and photographs of him have been found. Roy bears a strong resemblance to the Somerton man. Although details are still emerging, many of the clues have continued to add up, proving conclusively that Webb was the mysterious dead man. For one thing, Carl Webb had a nephew who also died during the war. That nephew's name was John Keene, the same last name that was found on some of the items of clothing inside the Somerton man's suitcase. It's believed that after Keene's death, his belongings were shipped home to his family and that Webb probably acquired some of them. In 1941, Carl Webb married Dorothy Robinson, although the couple became estranged and Webb completely vanished from the public record after he left her in 1947. In 1951, his wife filed for divorce on grounds of desertion. It has also become known that Webb enjoyed reading and writing poetry, which may explain his connection to the rare copy of the Rubaiyat, he also liked to bet on horse races. Abbott suspects the coded messages written on the book might have been part of Webb's personal code for some sort of system he had for gambling. Although details continue to emerge surrounding the life and death of Carl Webb, plenty of questions remain unanswered in the case of the Somerton man. What was he doing on Somerton Beach on his final day? And where had he been during his last year on Earth after leaving his wife? What was his relation, if any, to Joe Thompson? And most importantly, what caused his death? Was he murdered, or did he take his own life? Hopefully, time will tell. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
Part two, the Georgia Guidestones. On a warm summer afternoon in 1979, a man calling himself R.C. Christian strolled into the Alberton Granite Finishing Company in Alberton County, Georgia. He claimed to be a representative of a small group of loyal Americans who were interested in commissioning a monument that would act as a combination compass, clock, and calendar, and that this structure should be built to withstand what he described as catastrophic events. The company's president, Joe Fendley, was the person who greeted R.C. Christian that day. He is only one of two men who learned Christian's true identity, and Fenley took the man's secret to his grave. For many years, the most we had was a vague description of the mysterious R.C. Christian given by someone else who met him once, in that he was older and balding, with a fringe of white hair. One of the only other things we learned about him is that he had money, and a lot of it. Fenley thought the man was a nut and tried to get rid of him. The monument the man described was far bigger and more elaborate than anything the company had ever built before. Benley's company usually did wholesale orders for much smaller projects. So to try to dissuade him, Fenley quoted the man a price that was several times higher than any project the company had ever done. The job would require special tools, heavy equipment, and paid consultants to create this monument to the man's specifications. Much to Fenley's surprise, the man agreed. The monument's final cost came to $500,000 in 1980 money, which, factoring in inflation, would be about $1.6 million in today's dollars. R.C. Christian asked Fenley if there was a local banker he could work with to arrange the transfer of finances. Fenley introduced him to banker Wyatt Martin. Like Fenley, Martin thought the man was a nut, but soon came to realize how serious he really was. In an interview Martin gave, he said he even tried to discourage Christian by telling him what a waste of money it was and that he might as well throw the cash in the gutters. Christian just looked at him sadly and shook his head like he felt sorry for him. Then he replied, You don't understand. Martin explained to Christian that setting up such a large bank account couldn't be done under a pseudonym. R.C. Christian was then forced to reveal his real name to Wyatt Martin, who, like Fenley, also agreed to keep his identity secret. Over the years, Martin remained in loose contact with Christian, usually exchanging one or two letters a year with him. Each of these letters would come postmarked from different states across the country. The same went for every wire transfer of money. All money transfers came from different banks. Once the financial transactions to pay for the monument were complete, Martin agreed to destroy all documents that might lead to the man's true identity. For the remainder of his life, Wyatt Martin steadfastly refused to ever divulge R.C. Christian's true identity. Joe Fenley did too. Fenley died a few years after the monument was built. Wyatt Martin died in 2021. But it turns out that Martin did leave some clues behind that would eventually lead to the R.C. Christian's true identity being revealed. But more on that soon. R.C. Christian presented Fenley with a scale model of the Guidestones and 10 pages of detailed specifications. He said that the group he represented had been planning this for 20 years and that it was imperative that both he and the group he worked with remain anonymous. The five acres of land the Guidestones would be built on were purchased from farm owner Wayne Mullinax on October 1, 1979. Christian said he chose the location after circling the area in a private plane then being led to the exact spot by Martin and Fenley. Mullinax and his children were also granted lifetime cattle grazing rights on the property. On March 22, 1980, the monument was unveiled in front of a crowd of a few hundred people. 
Later, Christian would transfer ownership of the land and guide Stones to Albert County. The monument stood 19 feet 3 inches at its tallest point. It consisted of four large slabs of stone, each of which stands 16 feet 4 inches tall, with a capstone laid on top. The stones were so large they had to hire a couple of master stone cutters to smooth them. The stones were also precisely oriented to the stars. The east and west corners of the monument precisely tracked sunrise and sunset, while a slot cut into one of the slabs marked the winter and summer solstice. A shaft drilled through the central stone marked Polaris, the North Star, while another slit cut through the capstone was set precisely to mark the noonday sun. But all of the engineering it took to turn this massive hunk of granite into a compass and calendar is quite a feat in itself. It's the messages written on the stones that set off the biggest alarm bells for some people. When the monument was unveiled, some supporters like Yoko Ono praised their message as an uplifting call to rational thinking, while opponents immediately declared it to be the work of Satanists or the New World Order. Either way, opponents of the monument were convinced the group behind the Guidestones were hell-bent on bringing about the end of the world. So what do these messages say? Well, for that you have a lot of options to read them. The ten lines of text repeat themselves all over the stones and appear in English, Spanish, Swahili, Chinese, Arabic, Hindi, Hebrew, and Russian, the eight most widely spoken languages on Earth. Which would seem to indicate the group behind the monument's construction wanted their message to be as widely read as possible. There was also a sort of mission statement that appears in English, Egyptian hieroglyphics, classical Greek, Sanskrit, and Babylonian cuneiform that reads, Let these be a guidestones to an age of reason. The main part of the stones, though, are the Ten Commandments written on each slab. If you read up from the bottom, the first nine messages were as follows. 1. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. 2. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. 3. Balance personal rights with social duties. 4. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. 5. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. 6. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. 7. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. 8. Unite humanity with a living new language. 9. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Now, those nine messages taken by themselves might not seem too controversial. But taken in context with the last message, the very first if you decided to read from top to bottom, they all take on a much more sinister connotation. That top message read, Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Now, if keeping score in order to actually maintain humanity at that level, that would mean that 94% of the more than 8 billion people on Earth would have to die. This is the part that opponents of the Georgia Guidestones really take umbrage with. Some people believe the Guidestones were actually a directive for a global genocide, wiping out most of the human race. In 1986, R.C. Christian wrote a book titled Common Sense Renewed, which he sent to each member of Congress. This book further explained his ideas for bringing down the population and about how he thought the government should be in charge of making sure that future generations continue to breed wisely to keep things under control. This is a practice that's known as eugenics, the controversial belief that human breeding must be guided in such a way that it weeds out any undesirable traits. It should come as no shock to you that believers in eugenics often go hand-in-hand -hand with racist ideologies and white supremacy. It should also come as no shock, then, that 
Eugenics was also really popular with the Nazis during World War II. Ever since the Georgia Guidestones were unveiled, they had become something of a tourist attraction in Alberton County, albeit a controversial one. Over the years, one of the main conspiracy theories that sprung up surrounding the monuments was that they were satanic in origin. And in fact, some locals did report sightings of mysterious cloaked figures visiting the monument late at night, along with stories of mutilated animals and melted candles being found on the scene. An article in Wired Magazine about the monument cited some conservative Christians who named the monument the Ten Commandments of the Antichrist. Right-wing activist Mark Dice once announced that he believed the Guidestones should be, quote, smashed into a million pieces, and then the rubble should be used for construction paper. Well, turns out he got his wish. If you're planning on making a trip to Georgia anytime soon to see the Guidestones for yourself, don't bother, because they're not there anymore. At around 4 a.m. on July 6, 2022, Nearby residents heard and felt a large explosion. Someone detonated an explosive device at the site, destroying a significant portion of the monument. Within a few hours, heavy equipment was brought in to remove the shattered remains of the monument out of what the authorities described as safety concerns. Although the Alberton County Sheriff's and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation have investigated the incident, no arrests have been made and no leads to any suspects in the bombing have been made public. So who built these things and why? Well, we likely have the answer to that as well. Over the years, there have been a lot of names put forth as to R.C. Christian's true identity. One of the most prominent of which was media mogul Ted Turner, who certainly had the money to build the Georgia Guidestones. And it also expressed in interview his belief that for the human population to survive, we had to get our population numbers under control. But it probably wasn't Turner. Because Wyatt Martin said R.C. Christian died in the 2000s, and Ted Turner is still alive. In 2015, a documentary titled Dark Clouds Over Elberton came out that purported to reveal the true identity of R.C. Christian. Although Wyatt Martin never directly revealed R.C. Christian's real name, he did drop a few hints as to the man's identity. In interviews, he said that R.C. Christian had a daughter, that he had once worked in construction, that he served in World War II, and that he had been in basic training in Georgia during the war. In the documentary Dark Clouds Over Elberton, the filmmakers managed to interview Wyatt Martin, who was now elderly and had recently suffered a stroke. They managed to convince the man to show them some of the letters he received from R.C. Christian over the years. And although Martin attempted to cover up the postmarks on the letters, the cameraman managed to zoom in and capture an image of a return address, which was later traced back to a Dr. Herbert Kinsey Kirsten, a surgeon from Fort Dodge, Iowa. The documentary filmmakers make a solid case that Kirsten was R.C. Christian. Name Kirsten is an old Germanic variant of the name Christian. Kirsten once worked in construction, had two daughters and two sons, and once served in World War II, having done his basic training in Georgia. Kirsten was also a longtime conservationist and is alleged to have had ties to some members of the eugenics movement. This included a friend of his named William Shockley. He was a noted Stanford professor who won the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics for his co-invention of the transistor. Shockley was also a staunch eugenicist who wrote books and published academic papers on his belief that the human population needed to be greatly reduced, and that black people were genetically inferior. Now, we can't say for certain that Dr. Kirsten followed all of Shockley's beliefs, but there are some sources that do say he once supported David Duke, the former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. While it seems likely we know the true identity of R.C. Christian and about the dark origins of the Georgia Guidestones, that still leaves the unanswered question as to who destroyed them and why. 
CCTV footage from the night in question shows a shadowy figure running toward the monument moments before it explodes, and of a silver car racing from the scene. But strangely, within a few hours of the monument's destruction, heavy machines were at the location clearing the monument away. This should strike anyone as odd, because this should have been an active crime scene. Although local and federal investigators were on the scene, it just seemed strange that they were so quick to remove any evidence of the crime. Very little actual investigating appears to have been done. Now, it's true the public isn't often made privy to details of ongoing police investigations. But for now, with no updates being announced and no arrests being made in the case, all we're left with is more questions. Part 3. The Boy in the Box Back in February 1957, an 18-year-old man named John Stachowiak was bicycling along Susquehanna Road in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was on his way to play basketball in a local church gymnasium, but he decided to stop along the way and check some fur traps he'd set out earlier in the season. On that afternoon, John laid his bicycle down alongside the road and marched into the woods, kicking his way through the discarded cans and other garbage people tossed into the field. One object in particular caught John's attention. It was a large cardboard box lying on its side. He didn't recall seeing the box there the last time he'd been through this way to check his traps. Considering the box also wasn't completely destroyed by the wet snow and rain, he assumed it hadn't been there very long at all. Something about it piqued his interest, so John got closer to investigate. When John leaned in to peer inside the box, he cried out and stumbled backwards. Inside was what he first took for a naked mannequin or a doll, partly wrapped by a blanket but he quickly realized it was the naked dead body of a little boy. At first, Stachowiak didn't report what he found because he was worried the authorities would take away his fur traps. He went home and feigned being sick, then went straight to his room and tried to figure out what to do next. A few days later, on February 25th, a man named Frank Guthrum reported finding the boy's body in the woods. After he told police, he decided to get out of his car and chase a rabbit into the forest. Police thought the man's story was a little sketchy and suspected he might have been planning on traipsing through the woods to peep through the windows of a nearby school for wayward girls. No one knew exactly how old the boy in the box was. Estimates placed him anywhere from four to six years old. When details about what had been done to the child came out in the press, the public was horrified. This little boy had suffered terribly throughout his life. He was severely malnourished, standing just 40 inches tall and weighing only 30 pounds. He still had a full set of baby teeth. His nude body was badly bruised, and his hair had been savagely chopped off. Some investigators speculated this might have been done in an attempt to further hide his identity. The medical examiner determined the cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the skull. The most noticeable marks on the boy's body were the four round circular bruises along his forehead. The child's body was found wrapped in a rust and green colored Indian pattern blanket. His blue eyes stood partially open in death, and his small lips were crusted with blood. The boy had been so badly starved his ribs stood out through his almost translucent skin. As well as having his hair chopped off, the boy's body was cleaned, and the skin on his hands and feet were pruny, as if he'd been submerged in water prior to death. The boy also had surgical scars on both his ankle and groin and another L-shaped scar below his chin. Based on the rate of decomposition, which had been slowed because of the cold weather, the medical examiner estimated the little boy had been dead anywhere from three days to two weeks prior to his discovery. 
this was a case that would haunt many police investigators for the rest of their lives. The newspapers dubbed the child the boy in the box after a police teletype was sent out to the local media asking for more information leading to the boy's identity. More than 400,000 flyers were distributed featuring grim photos of the boy's badly beaten face. This touched a lot of nerves with the public and thousands of tips began to pour in. A New York airman came forward early on and told police he thought the boy might have been his kidnapped son, Stephen. Another boy from West Philadelphia told authorities he was certain the boy was his missing kid brother. Another woman told police the boy might have been her son who was supposed to be in the care of her no-good ex-husband. Yet another tip came in from a motorist who said he was driving along Susquehanna Road a few days before the boy's body was found when he stopped to talk to a woman and a 12-year-old child who were standing next to their car which was pulled over by the side of the road. The motorist asked the woman if she needed assistance, but she just waved him off. Unfortunately, the motorist couldn't give much of a description of the woman or the car beyond that. Police canvassed the area, checking every orphanage, foster home, and hospital. One dedicated police investigator named Bill Kelly poured through every single hospital birth record in Philadelphia looking for a name that might have gone with the boy, but never found one. A medical examiner investigator named Remington Bristow became so desperate for answers that he actually consulted a psychic to find out the boy's name. In 1998, a group of mostly retired police detectives, FBI agents, and forensic experts known as the Vidoc Society took up the investigation. They arranged for the boy's skeleton to be exhumed for DNA testing. The television program America's Most Wanted also did a segment on the boy in the box, which spawned a new wave of tips pouring in. Finally, on November 30, 2022, the Philadelphia police announced they had identified the child through genetic DNA testing. Forensic genealogists managed to trace the child's DNA through his family tree and determined that he was four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli. His biological parents were Augustus J. Zarelli, also known as Gus, and Mary Elizabeth Plunkett, also known as Betsy. Once the couple's name became public, hundreds of angry phone calls, emails, and comments from online trolls were directed toward the family. The problem is, it all appears that anger wasn't warranted. The family's lawyers revealed that the boy's biological parents gave him up for adoption, meaning whatever happened to the child likely occurred later on during his short life. Betsy Plunkin died in 1991, while Gus Sorelli died in 2014. Their surviving relatives have expressed tremendous remorse about the little boy's death. At the same time, they've also been adamant the boy's biological parents had nothing to do with it. Police investigators have publicly admitted they have a good idea how Joseph Sorelli died. At the same time, they have been reluctant to release any further details about the boy's death. On January 13th of this year, a dedication ceremony was conducted at Ivy Hill Cemetery, where a new headstone was placed on Joseph Augustus Sorelli's grave, giving him a name once and for all, and replacing the previous headstone, which used to simply read, America's Unknown Child. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to each and every one of you for helping make this show a success. Just a reminder that if you can't get enough of The Conspirators, I also have a Patreon account set up where you can listen to an ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the full-length episodes, only fun size. Patrons of the show get access to a bunch of other nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and signed thank you cards from yours truly. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Currently, we're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your pods. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. 
Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. You can even make requests for future show topics. In fact, it's because of how many emails and messages I received about the cases I talked about in this episode that I decided to revisit them and share the latest updates. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.